All right, if you guys have your Bibles, we're going to jump right in this morning to John chapter 17. John chapter 17. Uh, it amazes me to think that uh, next week, I believe, I got to always check with the Harringtons because they called my bluff last time, but I believe next week makes one year for us. And um, yeah, that's exciting. Thank you. Thanks, Anthony. <laughs> Anthony's going to start to wave in a minute. So, uh, so yeah, it's exciting news. And uh, along this journey, we have um, been going through the Gospel of, of John. And, and maybe for some of you, this is kind of a new thing, kind of going verse by verse through a, a, a book of the Bible. And um, so I was trying to figure out how, how this has gone. We, we took a few weeks off. At the very beginning, we started. We spent three weeks talking about the, the Great Commission, what that meant to Redemption Hill, and and how we were going to try and follow God's command in, in the Great Commission. So we spent three weeks there. I believe we spent about three weeks um, at Christmas time, going and kind of doing a Christmas thing. We did something for Mother's Day and something for Father's Day. Um, and so you take those days out. As best I can tell, we spent forty three weeks now in the Gospel of John. So forty three weeks, and we've gone through. Today we're starting the 17th chapter of the Gospel of John. Now, Easter we kind of cheated a little bit. We went a little bit ahead and looked at um, the Easter story through the Gospel of John. Um, and so I don't know about you. I've, I personally have thoroughly enjoyed this journey. I, I love, as I said before, I love looking at Scripture in the context in which it was written. I believe context, 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 context is so critically important. And it allows us, as we go through these stories to understand what maybe just happened and then maybe what's about to occur. And, um, and so this is to me is, is awesome. And so as we said before, we kind of keep doing a little, this is what happened previously in case you missed it type deal. But the first, um, 11 chapters of the gospel of John took about three years of Jesus' ministry. And then you, you start John chapter 12, there's this transition and really John chapter 12 through the end of the gospel covers just a few short days. And, um, and, and John, starting in John chapter 13 through John 16, what we completed last week is what we consider um, the upper room discourse. So it began John chapter 13 with Jesus washing the disciples' feet. Right, They're all gathered together. They're kind of, this is their last meal together. Jesus has this really cool time where he, he brings the fellows to, together, you know, his, his close group of guys that he's traveled for three and a half years with. Um, washes their feet. We talked about that. What an amazing um, lesson in humility. After he gets done washing the feet, Judas is identified as the one who would betray him. And so Jesus offers him this one last token of, of acceptance, one last token of, of coming back to him when he offers him that bread. And Judas just takes it. And then Jesus looks him like square in the eye and says, all right, get out of here. Go do what you're going to do. And then Judas leaves. And, and Jesus has this very, um, very, intimate moment with with his faithful faithful group that were there with him through thick and thin and so we see that going through john chapter 14 verse 6 i hope you have i hope you have underlined your bible um, one of the most critical verses in all of scripture and, and every verse is important but but john 14 6 jesus makes the claim where he says i'm the way the truth and the life and no one comes to the father except through me he, he makes it crystal clear he removes any type of of cloud, and he just says, "Listen, I'm the way, I'm the truth, and I'm the life, and nobody comes to the Father but through me." 
So we saw that John chapter 15, the beginning few verses, we talked about this. Jesus used this illustration at the end of John 14. Jesus says, hey, arise, let's go. Let's leave this place. They leave the upper room and they begin to walk towards the Garden of Gethsemane. And along this, this walk, more than likely, they, they go near some vineyards. And Jesus stops and gives them this little lesson on the vine and the branch. And he makes himself the vine and tells the disciples that they're the branch. And as long as they stay connected to the vine, they'll get the nourishment. And the fruit will come because of the vine. Not because of the branch, but because of the vine. And so he starts with that. And then we see the next step was this idea of a believer to believer. This importance of, of having good, strong Christian friends. Uh, people that you can turn to, that, that, that you have that common interest, a common faith in. And how important it is. It was, it was so critical to have an attachment to the vine. It was so critical to have a close, Christian, godly friend. Because the last part of John chapter 15 was a promise that Jesus made his disciples. And said, persecution's coming. Tribulation, hard times, things are going to happen. You'll be able to get through those difficult times if you stay connected to the vine and you have good godly friends. And so Jesus, in these last moments, he, he's spending time with his disciples and just, and just pouring into them. This is their, this is their final chat together. Um, last week, we kind of continued on this theme. And the last couple of weeks, there's been this um, continual talk that Jesus has made about difficult times coming. And in fact, if you... Before we get into John chapter 17, you look at, at the very last verse of John chapter 16. Um, he says, uh, verse 33 says, I've said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. Remember we talked about peace. Last week we talked about finding true joy, um, true love, and then ultimately finding true peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. So again, Jesus comes back and reminds them, you're going to find difficult times in the world. This transition in that term world, okay, it, beginning of John, very beginning of the Gospel of John, when, when John uses the term world, he's talking about the literal earth. And then it transitions into world being all of humanity. Okay, those, um, we use the, the verse John 3.16, for God so loved the, the world, right? Now, he wasn't talking about the trees and the lakes and the beaches. He was talking about humanity. For God so loved the world that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Jesus makes this offer to everyone. Whosoever. So in this, in this part of the Gospel of John, world here transitions from being an earthly world to humanity. And then later on in John chapter 10, that, that discourse about the Good Shepherd, we begin to see where he changes now and there's a separation between the world those who rejected Christ, and then those who have followed Christ, accepted him. And, and that's when we use that example of being the shepherd, and the, and the sheep know the shepherd's voice. Okay, and so we see this transition. So, so here in the end of John 16, when he talks about there'll be um, tribulation in the world, he, he's saying, listen, the world is not, we're not in the same team. We're going in different directions. And because of that, it's like oil and water. We don't mix. And and, and so they're not going to understand what you're doing. And as a result of that, they're not going to like you. There's going to be friction. There's going to be difficult times. Um, I I tried, um, even I think this this last week, I don't know if you guys have sensed this, really weighed heavy on my heart the last few weeks. Um, Because um, we've seen so many changes in in just our own country. I, I, I love 
history. My undergraduate degree is in history. I taught history for a few years. I love history. I, I love our country, that, this rich heritage that we have. But we've noticed there's, there's been a change in society. And I want to be very clear in, in the statements in the, in the letter that I sent out last night. Don't take it as a political statement against like our current president or a particular political party. Guys, if it was only as simple as blaming one person, we could solve the problem. But it's much deeper than one person. This is, this is an issue that we've been on this gradual slide for generations. It's just in the last weeks, months, few years, we've seen the steam and the speed pick up. And we've seen these very dramatic shifts in our own culture, our own society. And, and, I, and I say that because we can see that there's this, this chasm that's being created between the world and those who follow Jesus. And so in, in times past when we would say, well, persecution, we talk about persecution in China, we think like life and death. You know, we, we think about the Middle East, we think of, of, of people literally physically being beaten, abused, and maybe even killed for their faith. And then we can come back and say, well, yeah, just here. But here, like persecution is just somebody like pointing a finger, making a joke about you and things like that. Um, and I still, to the most, to, to, the, to a great extent, that's what it is. But I want us to be fully aware that that may not be the case forever. Like we will be facing difficult days. Jesus makes it clear. If, if you are going to follow me, the world will hate you. Look at what they've done to me. Look at what they, you know, this is what they will do to me when he's talking to the disciples. So if they've done that to the leader, you ought to expect the same to those who follow. And so he talks about this tribulation. But, but I love at the end of that how, how we can leave with this um, real sense of peace, knowing when Jesus makes the claim that even though it comes, even though the world may do it, I have overcome the world. Like it's signed, sealed, delivered. Like they can throw their best punch but I've taken it. I've won the war. Take heart in that. Um, uh, for us that believe in Christ, like we can take, we can have peace in knowing. And I, I made this statement three times, I think, in the last three messages. For those who believe in Christ, for those who have accepted Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, this here on earth is as close to hell as we'll ever get. So no matter what we go through, even if, if, if society here in, in our culture changes and it becomes the next Russia under Stalin or becomes the next communist China regime comes in here and we get this intense persecution. Like that's, as bad, that's as close as hell we'll ever get. And it may be awful, but that's the worst it will ever get for us. And today we're going to talk, we're going to use this, this, this chapter to, to give us some more hope. And we see this hope through Jesus when he talks about being glorified. And so as bad as it may be, like this is as worse it will get for us ever. And this is like 80, if we live to be 80 or 90 or 100 years old. Like that sounds really long, doesn't it? But those of us who are getting a little bit older now, like it's a blink of an eye, isn't it? Like I was picking up the keys the other day here at the school and I have to sign them out and they go and write the date and you're like, 
holy cow, like September's all like almost over. Like October is here. Like, I mean, kids are going to be dressing up like zombies or whatever in a few weeks for Halloween. And, and then we got Christmas trees and, and turkeys for Thanksgiving. All these things. Like, it, it feels like we were just here, doesn't it? I mean, we, I said a couple minutes ago, like, next week makes like a year for us. Like, it doesn't feel like it's been a year, does it? Like, time just goes and it, go, it goes faster and faster and faster. It's crazy. And so even if we live to be 100, James tells us that our life's like a vapor. It's just, it's like here and it's there. It's like a blink of an eye. And so if we have to endure persecution for one year, a hundred years, the jewel, the crown that we get of heaven for zillions and zillions and zillions of years is well worth it. So we win. We, 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 even if we die, we live. So we can take heart in that. The flip side of that coin is this. For the world, for those who reject Jesus Christ, this is as close to heaven as they'll ever get. This is it. This is their little taste. And it's an awful taste. It, it, it pales in comparison. And so we need to take heart in that and understand that, that if it, 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 as things do get difficult, that he's overcome the world. He's won the battle. He's won the war. And so then we get into John chapter 17. And, and John chapter 17 is a prayer. The entire chapter of John, chapter, of, of John 17 is a prayer between Jesus and God the Father. Um, John Knox, who was a um, Scottish reformer in the 16th century, very well known. This was his favorite chapter in all of Scripture. He, he referred to this chapter as the Holy of Holies in the Temple of Scriptures. When he was on his deathbed, those around him would read this chapter over and over and over again. Um, scholars, theologians, if you read in the commentaries, maybe even in the heading of your Bible, it refers to this as the high priestly prayer. Um, I think there's a better term that we could apply to this, and that's the Lord's Prayer. So often we, use, we think of the Lord's Prayer, we go back and we think of Matthew when Jesus is teaching the disciples how to pray. How to pray. This, isn't, this particular passage, this, this chapter is not a lesson on how to pray, but this is us seeing Jesus literally praying. We see the heart of the Son of God. Over the next few weeks, um, we're going to look at this chapter. In your bulletin, you'll see that we have down there John 7, 1 through 19. But we're only going to look at the first five verses. So there's too much. What's, what's cool about this particular prayer between Jesus and God is Jesus first prays for himself. Second, he prays for the disciples. And then third, he prays for us. Like us, like here today. He prays for the generations that will come who believe and will follow him. And so today we're, we're going to look at the first five verses here in, in the Gospel of John. And for, first five, uh, in John 17. So let me read these for us. Verse 17, or chapter 17, verse 1 says, When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh, 
to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, I glorify, now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Let's pray. Lord, I pray this morning as we look at this precious, holy scripture, as we have an opportunity to look into your heart, we have an opportunity to look at a prayer that you prayed to your Father. Lord, I pray that we, this morning, have open hearts, open eyes. Lord, I pray that you use your scripture to change and transform us. Lord, I pray this morning that you allow me to be your mouthpiece. Lord, I pray that everything I say, everything I do is faithful to your scriptures. Lord, I pray that that today everything that we say in our teaching, everything that we sing brings you honor and glory. May you always be the centerpiece of every service, of every gathering. Lord, we ask for amazing things to begin to happen today. So use this time, God, for your honor, for your glory. It's in your son's name that we pray. Amen. I want to just draw your attention to a couple of things this morning quickly. The very beginning in verse, verse, chapter, or verse 1. I love this. Um, and it's so simple. But, but sometimes if, if, if when we read scripture so quickly, we overlook things. Let me read this verse to you. Verse 1 says, when Jesus had spoken these words, so he got done saying, listen, the world's going to come. There's going to be tribulation. I've overcome the world. Don't sweat it. It says, after he said all these things, and this is my interjection here. This is my belief. Jesus gets done in John chapter 16. This is probably within an hour of him being arrested. I mean, the time is very, very near. Jesus makes these strong statements. And I have to think that, that as he does that, when he completes those statements, before John chapter 17 begins, there's this long moment of just silence where Jesus is allowing those statements to begin to melt the hearts of the disciples. The God, the light has finally turned on the, the minds and the eyes of these disciples. They realize that the time for Jesus is drawing to an end. They're wrestling with thoughts of, of loneliness. They're, they're, they're wrestling with, with what happens next. They're wrestling with what did I do the last three years? I mean, what's going to happen Everything we hoped for, everything we dreamed about, everything we'd given up for is going. And Jesus gives this pause, this moment of silence, I believe. And after he had said these things, I love that, verse 17. He lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Jesus begins to pray. I don't know about you. I can only speak for myself. But prayer is one of those deals 
that can be a struggle. Like prayer sometimes is one of those deals like we only go to, I only go and spend some real significant time in prayer when, when life seems out of control, when, when there's lots of questions and there's no answers, when there's a lot of uncertainty. Like that's when I tend to hunker down and begin to spend a lot of intense time in prayer. What's amazing to me in this is um, Jesus knows the outcome. There's no uncertainty in his mind. He knows what's about to occur. And he goes and spends time in prayer. I mean, to to me, it's a a huge lesson for us in that if Jesus, the Son of God, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, is going to pray, it might be wise for us to follow his example and spend time in prayer. Um, I've got a couple quotes that I came across this week about prayer. Um, one of my heroes outside of the Bible is Abraham Lincoln. I love Abraham Lincoln. He made this statement. He says, um, I have been driven many times upon my knees by the conviction that I had nowhere else to go. My own wisdom and that of all about me seemed insufficient for that day. I think about that. Abraham Lincoln. I mean, that arguably one of the greatest presidents wise man had those moments in his life and probably quite frequently where he didn't feel like he had the answers and the people around him lacked the answers and he went to his knees in prayer mother Teresa said this prayer is not asking prayer is putting oneself in the hands of God at his disposition and listening to his voice in the depths of our heart We're going to touch on this in a few moments. But so often prayer becomes my wish list. Like I want this, I want this, I need this, I need this, I need to change this. Mother Teresa was dead on when she says, listen, it's not us asking, but it's us putting ourselves in the hands of God. John Bunyan, who um, wrote Pilgrim's Progress, one of the most influential pieces of Christian literature said, In prayer, it is better to have a heart without words than words without a heart. And then Oswald Chambers said, We have to pray with our eyes on God, not on the difficulties. What's even greater than these statements, what's even stronger than um, what some mere person can say is Scripture. Colossians 4.2 says, I devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful. 1 Thessalonians 5.17 says, pray continually. Psalms 145.18 says, the Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. 1 Chronicles 16.11 says, look to the Lord and his strength. Seek his face always. And I love this verse. Uh, 1 Timothy 2.8 says, Um, I want men everywhere to lift up holy hands in prayer without anger or disputing. Isn't that awesome? Read that one again. 1 Timothy 2.8. I want men everywhere to lift up holy hands in prayer without anger or disputing. See, when we go to prayer, when we, we engage in communication with God, 
It ought not be so much about us asking Him to change things, but rather us asking Him to change us. God places circumstances in our lives, things that we don't understand, things that we may never understand here on earth. But he uses those things. He's a sovereign God. He knows. We, at best, can maybe see a few months, maybe a few years ahead. But God, King of kings, Lord of lords, is sovereign. He knows what's best for us. He doesn't care about what's most convenient for us. He doesn't maybe care what's uh, most comfortable for us. He wants what's best for us. So we see here in, towards the end of the first verse, says Jesus praying, he says, Father, the hour has come. We've seen that term, the hour, all throughout Scripture. All throughout the Gospel of John. If you, you remember, you go back to um, John chapter 2 when we talked about Jesus' first miracle. Who, what was Jesus' first miracle? Water into wine. Right? You guys remember? They're gathering it there at this, this uh, wedding feast. Uh, more than likely, Mary, his mom, is the one in charge. They run out of wine. Huge no-no. Right? So Mary comes to Jesus, her son, and says, Listen, there's a problem. I need you to fix this. And Jesus' response to her is, woman, my hour has not yet come. This time is not right. We see Jesus continually throughout the Gospel of John saying, the hour is not here, the hour is not here, the hour is not here. But now the hour has arrived. The time has come. The appointed time. Referencing back to Daniel chapter 7, 13 and 14. The time has arrived. A time set before the world even began. The time has arrived. Glorify your son. I said this morning, today we're looking at a prayer of Jesus to the Father. And the portion that we look at today is Jesus praying for himself. Now when we first read that passage, we think, wow, that's a little selfish, right? Like Jesus says, glorify me. Like, that seems a little selfish, doesn't it? It's important for us to understand what this glorify means. This term glorify is referring to his death, burial, his resurrection, and ultimately his ascension to heaven. It's not too selfish, is it, the death part? But if you go beyond that part, Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. Sometimes um, I think we begin to um, mix up a little bit of theology. And we begin to think about Jesus when he died on the cross. The thing going into this, the thing in the forefront of his mind, the one that he thought exclusively about was us. Now, he thought about us. He paid the penalty for us. But when we begin to walk down that train, then we can 
begin to put ourselves in this very important position as if we're the ones in charge. Jesus had a mission. When he left heaven to come to earth, he had a mission to glorify his Father. Okay? Jesus was always glorifying his Father. Always glorifying his Father. Always glorifying his Father. We are the beneficiaries of Jesus glorifying the Father. We benefit from it because we receive the gift. We receive the reward for him glorifying his Father. Verse 2 says, Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. God granted Jesus the authority over all flesh, over all humanity. Jesus is the one that determines heaven and hell. Verse 3 says, And this is eternal life. I would encourage you to underline this verse. And this is eternal life. That they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Verse 4 says, I have glorified you on earth. Having accomplished the work that you have given me to do. Your version may say something a little bit different. Instead of accomplished, it may say finished. Again, I would encourage you to underline that word accomplished or finished. Jesus goes to his father and he says, listen, God, I've done, I've finished. The job's complete. I'm I'm thankful that it wasn't one of these um, things that God, like I began the work, I started it. Um, I got a few ideas on what we're about to do. But he says, no, I've finished the work. Here's something that I'm convinced we all have the opportunity to follow God's will in our life. God has a plan for each and every one here. All of us. There is a specific plan for your life. There are things that you know that God has spoken and laid on your heart. If we reach a point in our life Today, where we knew we only had a few hours left in our life. We knew we were about to face Jesus. What would that conversation be like? Would you be able to stand before God today and say, listen, God, I finished the job that you had for me. Or would it be, I know you've been asking me to do this for a while. But, but, whatever it might be, work got too busy. We had too many kids. Clements. (laughs) Didn't have enough money. Timing just wasn't right. Just a little conflict in, in, in scheduling here. Took me a little while to free my calendar up to get to what you wanted me to do. If you go back to um, 1 Samuel, I believe it's chapter 15. Samuel goes to Saul, King Saul. And he tells Saul, he goes, you need to go and kill all 
all, all. I don't think he said all three times, but he said every one of the Malachites. And so Saul goes, and he does almost all of it. Except he decides he's going to keep King Agag. Kind of as his trophy. He did like 99.9% of what Saul, what Samuel told him to do. He goes, he does, I mean, he kills everybody but the king. He wants to keep the king as his trophy. Fast forward 25 years later. Samuel's on a battlefield, gets, or Saul's on the battlefield, gets injured badly. Doesn't want to be captive, so he finds this young man in the battlefield and asks this young man to kill him. That young man happens to be an Amalekite. Where did he come from? How did he, how did he get there? Somewhere down the, the, the road, Agag fathered a son. And that one thing that he didn't take care of completely, ultimately took care of him. In our lives, God's got a plan for you. God's called us all to do something. There's things in our lives that that he's drawing our attention towards. There might be a sin in your life that, that you know that he's been telling you to get right, get out. And maybe in your mind you're saying, yeah, but I got this under control now. I've been able to get rid of most of it. It may just be like old King Agag. It will come back and get you. I don't know about you, but when you read some of these stories in the scriptures, you think about Noah when he's building the ark. What if he had built the structure, built the frame, and he said, you know what, I think it's good enough. I did most of it. It's good enough, right? Good enough wouldn't have done very well when it started raining, would it have? Jesus says, it is finished. I have completed the work. Jesus has a plan for all of us. He's called us all to do something. I don't know what it is for you. There's days I don't know if I know it for me. (laughs) But are we going to be faithful to that calling? And as God lays things on our hearts, as we know without a shadow of a doubt that God's calling us to do something, are we going to do it? Do it to its entirety? Till it's accomplished, till it's complete, till it's finished? Or will we ignore it? Hide from it? Or maybe start it? Do a little bit of it? Jesus says, I've finished. I've finished it. What's amazing to me is as you continue that path, beyond I've accomplished, the work that you gave me to do, See, there was a specific job that God gave Jesus to do. You go in in Mark chapter 1, verses 35 through 40. Jesus, this is after his meeting with John the Baptist, he's been shown that he's he's the Messiah. And people are beginning to flock to him. And and the the crowds, the town, you know, Israel, Jerusalem, they want him to come. Big crowds are gathering, they want him to come. Jesus, at the very beginning of John chapter 1, Mark 1.35, it tells us that Jesus went away in the morning and prayed. 
And he prayed. In that prayer, God gave him direction. And so as the crowds are wanting to go, the big city's calling for him. His response to the disciples is, we're going to go to Galilee. Old backwoods. Maybe Bluntstown for us in our area. Big city wants you, but Jesus says, God's called me to go to the sticks. And I'm going to be faithful to my father. And so he goes. That was the job that God gave him. God gave us a God. God gave us a job. Are we going to follow? Are we going to do it? He says, or are we going to listen to the clamoring of the people? I told you, love, joy, and peace that we talked about last week are so hard for us to attain because in our minds, in our struggles that we go through, we so often try and put and find not joy but happiness in something different. A relationship. A job. An organization. And for some it's even a church. But those things will always, always fail us if we think that's the ultimate source of joy. This marriage counseling or conference that, that I would so encourage us to go to if we can paints a beautiful picture of marriage because it reminds us that we are all sinners. And so often when we get to, the, to, to these different things, we read these different books, we start talking about these communication steps that will clear everything up. I don't care if your problems with drugs, with alcohol, if your marriage stinks, if, if you're failing in every area of your life, whatever it is, at the root of it is the gospel. At the root of it is Jesus Christ. And if your heart is not right with God, the rest will all be screwed up. For us, sometimes we think, well, well, we need to focus more. I need to focus more on my wife. The reality is I need to focus more on God. If I get my relationship with God right, the byproduct of that will be a better marriage. The byproduct of that will be Chad being a better father. Chad being a better pastor. Quit focusing on all the other distractions and focus on the heart. Focus on what God's called us to do. He's given us a task. These are exciting days for us as a church. I, I was told um, Friday afternoon that, that we um, got word that the permits were finally finished. We've waited like three weeks on these things. It's awesome. It's good news. It's woof. <laughs> Anthony, start the wave again, right? I mean, those are exciting. That, that's good. But if that's the final part, like if our hope is, is that we can get into a new building and we can just get nice, we're going to put money towards getting nice, comfortable chairs so we can show up on a Sunday morning and get comfortable. And we failed miserably, like Titanic failure. Like this is just the springboard. This is just the beginning of what God's called us to do. Like we're just now beginning the phase. We're, we're in the very beginning steps of the journey. And I promise you, and I'm not trying to scare people away, but the journey is going to intensify. Like God, God's called us to do amazing things, to reach this community for Him. 
to show Tallahassee, Leon County, Florida, wherever else He puts us in, the love of Christ. God's going to call us, call you to do different things. Like this time next year, if the same group gathers and we're in the same position that we are today, we've failed miserably. I've failed as a pastor. God's called us to do things. Like it excites me to think of this women's Bible study and the things that come out of that. The relationship with Christ that is strengthened and the encouragement from others. I mean, I look forward to the day when that group of 20 turns into a group of 200 ladies. My in-laws are getting ready to leave like in the next week to go to Africa on a missions trip. I'm really hoping he comes back with like one of those African garbs, little hats and sticks. Maybe he can come up here and do a little lesson for us. I don't know. My father-in-law embraces everything to its fullest. But they're going on a missions trip to Africa in which they'll have the opportunity to touch lives over there with the gospel of Jesus Christ, with the story of a Savior who left heaven to come to earth, who ultimately died on the cross to pay a penalty for sins that we could not pay. To tell those that they come in contact with that Jesus is the way and the truth and the life and no one can come to the Father but through them. This summer we saw a group of four of our college students go to Miami and do that with little kids in the projects. My prayer is that those type of things aren't rarities for Redemption Hill. But we hear stories of that on a regular basis. That we, um, as a church are able to send groups, our own groups, to Africa or wherever it may be. That, we, that you feel so driven to share the gospel that, that you might sync up with another group somewhere else that's going to Peru or wherever. That we begin to have these small groups in our communities. That we don't just think we have to go to another foreign country to share the gospel of Jesus Christ, but we can look in our own backyard. And that this one small group, this one ladies Bible study, this time next year we can look back and we can see the men's doing their group again. And we can see the youth doing their groups. And, and we can see maybe a, a young married group meeting together and an old married group meeting together and the mid-married group meeting together and whatever it ends up being. And that we're helping those in need here. And that we're not just looking at creating a social gospel. That we're not just a charity giving people things. But we're a vehicle that Jesus Christ uses to give them something more than just water, but living water. These are amazing days. And the best is yet to come. The journey is just beginning. God's called us as a church to do unbelievable things. And I hope that you 
join me in doing exactly what Jesus did that late, late evening when he went to the Father in prayer. I hope, I hope, I'm going to ask you guys personally. First, I'm going to ask that you guys pray for the church as a whole. I I personally covet your prayers. I, I hope that you pray for me. That we stay on the right track that God's called us to. That we do exactly what God has called us to do. That God reveals those things to us. So often, I believe, we make God's will this big cloud that we think is just too hard to understand. This, I believe, if we're in God's word and we're spending time with him in prayer, he's going to reveal it to us. We're not going to be some yo-yo that he just plays around with just to tease us and taunt us. He'll reveal it to us. He'll show us. Scripture tells us that. We just need to be faithful in going to him for the answers. Don't come to me for your answers. Go to God. Let's us as a church body follow the example that Jesus set for he, right here in this scripture. Realizing that he has a call for us as a church. He has a call for you as an individual. And whatever that may be individually, whatever that may be corporately, that we with reckless abandon passionately pursue that calling. So when we stand before him one day, We can say, I finished the job that you gave me. I did what you asked me to do. We've accomplished the task. Not for our glory. Not for the accolades that I get. But for your glory. You get all the glory. You, we did all this. Redemption Hill is, exists solely for Jesus Christ. Like we talk about Jesus all the time. That we do those things to its fullest. With every breath that we have. There's too much at stake. And I love, love, love. In these waning moments... Of Jesus. Because this time, the next day, he's on a cross. He's hanging on a cross. He's not upset. He's not scared. This last part, we see glory mentioned again. Verse number one, that glory we talked about, referred to his death, resurrection, the ascension. The very end there it says, um, in verse, towards the end of verse 5 says, um, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Jesus is homesick. And he's saying, okay, I, I know what's going to happen. I know like this time tomorrow I'm going to be hanging on a cross I know this time I'll be dripping with, with blood. I'll be dripping with sweat. I'll be, be dripping with the spit of those around me. I'll be listening to people mock me. I'll see them rip my clothes. I know that's about to happen. 
And let us not for one second think this was an easy task for Jesus Christ. Yes, he was the son of God, but he went through all that physical torment. And beyond all that, he bore every sin. Every sin. The little white lies to the grotesque sins that we can't even talk about up here. Every single sin that humanity ever committed and ever would commit, he bore on his shoulders. He took the wrath of God for us. He knew all that was coming. But he knew after that, he was going to be going back to his father, going back to heaven and sitting at the right hand. It's amazing. And the same can be true for us. end of the day, no matter what happens, if we sell out our lives for Jesus Christ, if, if God calls us to do something radical or whatever it is, then I'm, I mean, just whatever. I mean, if he tells you guys to sell everything and move to a little hut in Timbuktu to tell three families about God, whatever it is he calls you to do, I don't know. But I know this. It may be challenging here. But I promise you. And I try not to make too many promises. But I promise you. When you stand before Jesus Christ one day. You will not regret giving something up for him. The flip side to that coin is. If God called you to do something. And you don't. One day you stand before him. With a much different feeling. Let's pray.